This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Glad you guys are here with us. We're going to spend the next uh, 30, 40 minutes uh, going through the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can take that out. Uh, if you have a Bible app, you guys can use that. If you don't have or own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. So there's a black one in the back. I would love to put in your hands for free because we believe this is significant and important. Um, so as a church, we are looking at a specific portion of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is kind of a funny name, but it is Jesus' um, longest teaching or set of teachings we have. It is often called kind of his manifesto of the kingdom, his, his kind of... Um, kind of his, his opus, right, like his, his masterpiece that he put forward. And at the same time, it is maybe the most familiar set of teachings that Jesus has, but it oftentimes is the most confusing, the most misinterpreted. Um, and so there's something about this passage that demands us to dive deep into what is it saying, what it, why did Jesus say this in this order, and what would it have meant to those originally hearing it. And so that's what we've been doing the last two weeks, for the next few weeks, and we're doing this with um, uh, our sister church down in San Diego called Park Hill uh, Church, and so our, our friends Evan and Sandy Wickham planted a few months, and so we thought, wouldn't it be cool to do a sermon series together? So we've, um, we're getting together on Tuesday mornings, we're studying and reading and talking, having conversations and debates and wrestling, what does this mean? And so these sermons are coming out of a, really a place of, of kind of communal um, understanding, um, not that we're preaching the exact same sermon or even come to the exact same conclusions, but it's been a really fun exercise to do. And tonight's sermon from the Bible is all about the Bible. Uh, this specific passage on, in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's kind of reconfiguring of what you should do with the Bible. Now, Jesus did not have the Bible you have. He did not have the 66 books. He had the 39 books in the Old Testament. Um, they already had those together. It wasn't kind of in a leather-bound book. It was uh, more in, in scrolls passed down uh, through traditions. And so when he refers to the Bible, just for us to understand, that's what he's talking about. But he probably won't say the Bible. He'll say the law, and sometimes the law and the prophets. So for the Jewish Bible, it is broken down, and, and stick with me here. The law would be the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. And the, the later end of the Old Testament is a book of what they call the prophets, and that's where people were giving uh, kind of prophetic imagery of what Israel went through and where it was going. And in the middle, there was a group called the Writings, the Psalms and Proverbs and things like that. And together, it's called the Tanakh. It was the Old Testament. It was the, the Jewish Bible that the Jews still use today. We use the exact same one. It's not a different one. We just believe that Jesus comes and fulfills the story, ends the story. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is largely what do we do with the Old Testament? And if you've ever read the Old Testament, it's weird and strange and sometimes uncomfortable uh, uh, to the point where most people don't read it, most people don't preach about it, most people don't know where it fits. And so that's what we're going to try and tackle the next few minutes is where does this fit in our, in our Christian walk? What does Jesus have to say about the Old Testament? Because if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it's, there's some stuff that's a little alarming. Um, I have four kids. And... Uh, Jen and I are driving, and 
we, we listen in Zoe, our oldest, who's nine, is reading the Bible to her siblings. And there's, I don't have these moments all the time, but I have this moment, I'm just like, I'm an awesome dad. I'm just, I'm so, man, we're so great. You know, it doesn't happen most of the time, it's the opposite. But I have this moment, I just grab Jen's hand, and I'm just like, gosh, do you hear what's happening right now? Our daughter is reading scripture to her siblings. And we're just like, kind of sit back, we're like, let's just, let's just listen. Let's just listen to what Zoe's reading. And, and Zoe begins to read. Because <laughs> I'm already laughing. <laughs> And Sarai told Abram, here, take my servant and lay with her. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, Zoe, turn the page. Uh, read, read something about Jesus, <laughs> quick. <laughs> what kind of children's Bible is this, right? Like, there's, the, re, the reality is, whether you're a nine-year-old or a 90-year-old, there's stuff in there, specifically in Old Testament, you're like, what do I do with this? And in no way is this sermon going to satisfy all of those things, but hopefully this gives us some tools and some direction on what to do with that, how to read, how, where does that fit in our life. And so, this, so Jesus is standing on this hillside, this mountain, and he's teaching this crowd of people, specifically his disciples. And at that time, people were, were Jesus' message was so radical that they began, some of these people started being like, man, maybe he's actually coming to like do away with the whole Old Testament altogether. It was kind of one of the theories about what Jesus was trying to do. And uh, like today, back then there was progressive liberal theology and there was conservative fundamental theology. And those who were part of the, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin were progressive and liberal and they would have probably been fine with that. They didn't really paid that much attention to some of the things in the Old Testament. And then there was the conservative Pharisees that said, no, 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 you have to follow every single thing that has to happen. And Jesus is ruffling everyone's feathers when it comes to what to do with the Bible. And so in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, before he gets into like instructions on how to live and how to live a flourishing life, he begins with these words. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, this is huge, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, which is another way of saying it will never happen, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called the great, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you are sitting there as a, an ancient Jewish follower, listening to this radical, obscure rabbi from Nazareth, your heart would have just sunk. The reason being is at the end of this section of his speech, he ends it with this, unless your, this is the key word, righteousness exceeds, surpasses that of the Pharisees, then you'll never be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, the reason why that would have been so alarming to someone is because Pharisees were professional law followers. It's, what, it's literally what they did. They spent their entire lives studying the laws, interpreting the laws, living out the laws, and policing the Jewish people to make sure they didn't break any of the laws either. So when you're sitting there as a, as a fisherman, right, or someone as a farmer or a camel trader or, or a tax collector, you hear that and you're just like, I'm done. There's no way, there's no way that I could ever have righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees because they obey all the laws. Unless Jesus was actually saying that maybe righteousness is something totally different altogether. Because either he just set the bar at an impossible height or he's demanding us to rethink what righteousness is. This is huge because righteousness is a theme all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually the, the, really the subject of most of Paul's letter to the Romans. I mean, this idea of righteousness is this Greek word diakonuse, and it was central not just to the Jewish faith, but really to the entire ancient Greco-Roman world. As a matter of fact, Plato wrote about diakonuse, about righteousness, and he talked about how this is what it means to exist is to be righteous, Aristotle later changes the word from righteousness to virtue. But both of these brilliant philosophers and rabbis were always wrestling, what does it mean to live the best, most flourishing life? What is it? And for them, that term was righteousness, right relationship with God and people. What does it mean to have that thing where life is flourishing and full and everything is in its right order? And for the Jewish people, they were told and believed that what that meant is you had to follow every single law that God gave. There were 613 of them, by the way. And Jesus says, unless you do something different and exceed what the Pharisees are doing, you'll never enter my kingdom. Your righteousness has to surpass that. And so you can imagine immediately, they're just like, their heads are spinning. Right? Like, what do we, what do, we do with that? And to be honest, a lot of us are like, what do we do with that? Because oftentimes we look at following God's law as something that's negative. And, and the reality is none of us do it. N- none of you have kept the Sabbath the way it's prescribed in the Levitical law. None of you follow the cleanliness laws. N- none of us follow these things. So we oftentimes don't know what to do with them, so we just kind of skim over them, pass over them, or we just just kind of leave them there. But God's word is not apologetic for the Torah. It's not apologetic for the law. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. He says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. When's the last time you delighted in the Levitical law? Oh, this is so good. Oh my gosh. I never knew not to boil my goat in its mother's milk. This is life-changing. I'm so delighted. Right, but it says right here, they, Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Listen, and whose leaves do not wither, whatever they do prospers. You see, the law is a gift. 
It's a gift to humanity. But like almost every single gift that is given, it can be misused and abused and even harmful if not understood properly. So that's the point of tonight. What is the law? What do we do with the law as followers of Jesus? And what does Jesus say about where the law is supposed to end up in our faith? And so um, so let's go back just verse by verse. What is Jesus saying here? And so let's look for some clues here. The, the first thing is this. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill the law. Now, these words are really interesting, and Jesus is kind of making a really bold statement here. And he begins, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to get rid of it. This katalusai is this Greek word. It means dismantle a building brick by brick. He's not trying to break down what the law is or is meant. Now, you would think that the opposite of abolish, which literally means to disobey or to dismantle, is to obey or to build up. It's not what he says. He didn't say, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to obey the law. He said, I've come to fulfill the law. Again, shocking word choice. And this word is um, plurosi, is this Greek word, which refers to a pattern of prophecy that comes to fulfillment. So Jesus is saying, all of the law and the, and the, and, and the, the Torah and what's given, I didn't come to, to dismantle it, which would have made the... Uh, the conservatives just be like, whew. But he didn't answer, I came to obey, which would have made them be like, oh. he says, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to let it come to pass, and I am the fulfillment of it. I'm where it, is, where it ends up. Verse 18, he talks about how none of it's going to pass away, not even the smallest letter, and he literally refers to not even the swoosh, the seraph, the littlest tiny inkling of a letter will go away. It's tedious. It's not like there are some, because this is how, if we're honest, this is how we treat it. We treat like some of these laws are good. You should not murder, right? You should not commit adultery. But there's some in here that are just like, ah, Sabbath is not, you know, whatever. And so he says, none of it's going to pass away, not even the littlest part of it. In verse 9, he starts talking about, and he says, and those who do away with it will be the least in the kingdom of God, but those who teach and practice it will become great in the kingdom of God. And there seems to be some sort of reciprocal relationship between how you treat the Bible and your life in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to say that again. According to Jesus, there is some sort of reciprocal relationship between your relationship with this and your life in the kingdom of God. And right as you're starting to sweat and get nervous, being like, uh, what is this? Like, is he going to ask me to obey a bunch of strange Jewish laws? Well, he responds by saying this whole thing about righteousness, which again flips the whole thing on its head, saying, there you have to look at righteousness differently. And this is what I said last week, the week before, we're going to say it every single week, is Jesus is trying to move people from outward conformity to inward transformation. You see, Pharisees were literally masters at outward conformity. They followed everything. But he says, your righteousness has to surpass that, which means he's moving away from outward conformity. He's moving away from you have to obey every single law to T, to you have to move to inward transformation, that the law was given to transform us, to push us towards something else. So, 
if you're not confused enough, uh, we're going to watch a short video, which hopefully is going to tie all this in together for you. Uh, there is a, a group of professors and artists in Portland that started something called the Bible Project. And I would encourage you to go on YouTube. They have tons of videos on some really complicated things in Scripture, and they make it so beautiful and simple and profound. Um, so we're going to watch one on the law. We're going to watch about what Jesus is trying to get out here with where does the law fit, where is its place in us as followers of Jesus. So let's go ahead and watch the screens and let's see what they have to what I want to do now is I want to, now that we understand kind of what Jesus is saying here, the question now is like, so what? So what, what do we do? How do we move forward? What do we do with the Old Testament? Um, and so I'm going to give you just kind of three things. We're going to, I'm just kind of tools for your bag, things that you can kind of think through. You can write these things down, take a picture if you want, um, that are going to just kind of help you as we look specifically at the Old Testament. Number one is the Bible should be read Christologically, um, which we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, number two, the Bible should be honored reverently. And number three, the Bible should be lived out lovingly. Um, so let's just kind of go through these three tools that hopefully we can all walk away with. The number one thing is that the Bible should be read Christologically. Now, this is, this is really huge because uh, just to nerd out on you for a second. So in Bible calls, they teach you to, to how you interpret the Bible is called hermeneutics. And it's how, because everyone, we have the same Bible, but how you interpret that really matters. And so what they kind of ingrain in you is there has to be a grammatical, historical hermeneutic, which means that you have to pay attention to the words that are being said, how they're being played, the context of those things, what's happening in the greater social context and the history of those places. And in that kind of lens, you're going to see the greatest accuracy of that thing, which is all true and good. But another part of understanding and interpreting Scripture well, according to Jesus, is that all Scripture, all of the Old Testament, and all of the law is pointing to Him. So when we read the Old Testament, when we read about laws, we have to look them through the lens of Christ. How does Jesus say to interpret, do not murder? Well, He actually says that it's about not hating what does Jesus say about the Sabbath? And he has some really interesting things to say about the Sabbath. So when we read the Old Testament, we are to read it Christologically. And that's helpful because if we're honest, the Old Testament is, is mysterious, to put it nicely. And can I just say, that's all right. It's okay if the Old Testament and the Bible in general and God himself leaves us perplexed at times. And the reason for that is if it didn't, if Scripture did not leave us confused, if it didn't rub us the wrong way, then maybe, just maybe, it was something that was invented by humans all along. But I don't believe it was. It was written to us, not for us to like it. It was written for us to actually be able to be challenged by it. I love what Andrew Wilson says this quote says, the point is, whenever Scripture challenges some of our deeply held beliefs, as it often does, we have a choice. We can challenge the Bible, or we can let the Bible challenge us. And so I think that what happens is as we approach mysterious, uh, the Scriptures and we see the mystery and even some of the things that are hard to understand or things that are perplexing, we can often just say, well, let's not focus on those parts. Let's just do away with those parts. 
And then there's another danger that oftentimes we can read the Old Testament and we can just begin to be like, well, we just have to obey all the laws. And we become legalists. And so Jesus, reading the Bible Christologically, gives us the healthiest way in, to handle and to hold and to read the Old Testament. Uh, Andrew Wilson, who I just quoted, also has this quote from his book called Unbreakable. It's a great book, by the way. You can, you can get it on Amazon. It's like 75 pages, really short. It's called What the Son of God Has to Say About the Word of God. This is a quote from that book. And he says, When you get your head round the nature of fulfillment, you realize that the purpose of the law is being beautifully achieved in each of these examples. Moses gave commands about murder, oaths, adultery, divorce, and retaliation because he was dealing with a hard-hearted nation who needed laws to protect themselves. But he also looked forward to a day when they would receive new hearts and would obey the law in a far more radical way. No anger, lust, broken marriages, or violence. So when Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he isn't being clever. He's saying that the ship was always meant for the ocean. And the engagement was always pointed towards a wedding. And the law and the prophets were always going to climax in a new king, a new people, and a new heart. The Apostle Paul, when he writes a letter to the Romans, puts it this way. Christ is the culmination of the law. So there may be righteousness. There it is. There can be diakosune for everyone who believes. Paul also writes to this church in uh, in his letter to the Galatians. This really, I think, helpful wording on what to do with the law. What... Why are there some laws that feel like they're forever? Why are there some laws that feel like um, we don't seem to follow and care for and foster as much as the church anymore? This is what he says in Galatians 3.24. It says, so then the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And what it means is that word guardian is this Greek word for tutor. It's a Greek word for someone who would kind of be like a nanny but with like an educational emphasis. So wealthy families would hire a guardian, a tutor, to come alongside and to essentially raise their children up in the way they wanted them raised. And so Paul says the law was that for Israel. It was a, it was a tutor, not the parent. It was a tool given to raise Israel up into a certain direction toward, until Jesus came to fulfill all of it. Now, it's really helpful for me because as a parent, there are certain laws that I hope my family always follows, my children always follow, right? Maybe not laws, you know, rules, let's say. And there's also certain rules and laws in my house that I'm really hoping that they grow out of. So for example, um, I, I remember when Zoe was in kindergarten and she came home and she says, there's a little boy who wants to marry me. And I was like, okay, how do I handle this? I can't kill him. Um, so what do I do? So I told her this. I said, Zoe, if there's ever a boy who wants to marry you, date you, thinks you're pretty, gets within five feet radius of you, you have to tell that boy to come talk to dad first. Um, so she literally did it. Um, 
And what's so funny, and so all my girls know this rule. There's ever a boy who has a crush on them, wants to be their boyfriend, wants to marry them, whatever. They have to talk to their dad first. I've literally had five-year-olds approach me about to pee their pants. It's great. Can I tell you? That's a good law, and it will always be there. So as they grow older and as they become teenagers and in their 20s, any guy who thinks he's going to come close to my daughter will have to talk to me first. That's a good law. It's going to always stay there. But... There are other rules in my house that I really hope don't last. For example, I have uh, a four-year-old, and one of the rules is, hey, when you go to the bathroom, mom and dad still have to wipe your butt. And so every once in a while, I hear my four-year-old run like, dad, mom, I'm ready. I pray to God that will not be the case when she's 16. Right? It's weird. Mom, dad, No. See, that, 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 those, there are rules given, and they're all out of the goodness of my heart as a father to say, I want the best for you. But just because a law is given doesn't necessarily mean that it's forever. What it means is I'm directing you towards a life that is flourishing. And for Paul, he says that's what the law that was given to Israel is for. Some, yes, will last forever. It's still a good idea not to murder. You can write that down. Um, but... There are also other things that were pointing people towards Jesus, the fulfillment of all of the law. Does that make sense? So, (laughs) all the quiet people, love you. Uh, John Mark Comer, who's a pastor in Portland, says it like this. For Jesus, the Old Testament was dynamic, not static. There was an inertia to it, a forward motion to it, and it was always going somewhere. The Bible is a story, and for Jesus, it is reaching its climax in and through his life. I love how it says it. There's an inertia to it, right? The script, and I love how even the Bible Project and, and Tim Mackey and those guys say, the law is really a poor name for it because it's really not a bunch of laws. It's a story that the laws are directing towards Jesus, who is the fulfillment, the climax, the crescendo of that story. So that's number one. We have to read the Old Testament through a Christological lens, through a Jesus lens. Number two, the Bible should be honored reverently. Again, this is, this is huge for our culture because maybe you're okay with the Bible, but the reality is there's not a single person in this room who does not struggle to treat it with the kind of reverence and authority that it deserves. One of my favorite stories is how when literally the chapter before this, Jesus is brought to the desert for 40 days and he's tempted three times by Satan. By the way, he's literally replicating Israel's history. Israel is led out to the desert for 40 years and tempted. Jesus is led out to the desert for 40 days and tempted. He's a picture of the new Israel, the new people of God. And as he's tempted, think about like if you're Jesus, you have in all the ammo, all the weapons in the world to literally zap Satan. Like, you're, you're God, right? Like, you're just like, how do I want to kill you today? How do I want to zap you, stand on you, or whatever? You know, the only thing Jesus chooses to do is he quotes himself. He quotes the Bible. Satan comes and tempts him, and Jesus' response is, It is written. Comes again and tempts him with something else. And his response is, it is written. Third time, Jesus, Satan comes and promises him all the power and the authority in the world without any of the suffering. And his response 
is my word is the authority that I live with and under. How wild that Jesus, God himself, who John literally calls him the word, is so confident in that word that that is the thing he uses to dismantle Satan's arguments. Why don't we do that? Why do we treat this book as like, like something like, I have to do or else I feel kind of guilty because I didn't read my Bible enough times this week. Rather than, I need this inside of me because according to Jesus and the example Jesus sets, it is the most effective thing for me to ward off the distractions and the temptations that this life is trying to throw at me. This is it for Jesus. He goes as far to say in Matthew 4, 4, he says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. My friends, I did not have lunch today, and I'm feeling it. Can I just tell you right now, I can't wait to go eat a burrito at Taco Stand right after service. I'm dying up here because I missed a single meal. You know what Jesus says? He's like, this is, should, this is how we should respond to Scripture. When's the last time you felt an ache in your spirit because you have gone without this? It's the bread. It is more significant than the meals that we eat physically. This is the substance that our spirit needs for us to live a flourishing life. So we have to read the Bible Christologically. The Bible should be honored reverently. And number three, the Bible should be lived out lovingly. I love how they talk about how Jesus makes it really simple for us. This is it. The law is summed up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. What do you do with the Old Testament? You love. You love God, and you love people with every ounce of your being. And if the Old Testament is pushing you towards legalism and self-righteousness, then you have read it and lived it out wrong. If the Old Testament is pushing you to the reality that you are a broken, broken, rebellious, fractured person who's in need of a Savior, and that loving Savior hits your heart in such a way you can't help but love people, then you have read it correctly. The law and the prophets are summed up in loving God and loving others. There's no fancy way about it. It's that. It's always that, and it will always be that. So we have those three things, those three tools we can put in our bag. And let me just get really practical on you on what to do with those, okay? And I'm just going to be real. And by the way, this is a little bit off script. You don't have to do these things. I'm not like prescribing them. These aren't scripture. These are just things that have helped me. And I'm going to be honest, some of them are not that glamorous, that have helped me when it comes to having the Bible be a part of my life. So the first question is this, how will you grow in your rhythm with the Bible? So can I tell you, I have not missed a day of reading the Bible since December 1st. It's the first time in my life I have gone that long without missing a day reading scripture. Can I tell you my secret? I was in a bet with some friends. True story. I'm kind of ashamed of it. I wish I could be like, I'm so in love with Jesus, I can't get enough with it. I just don't want to lose 100 bucks. So... January 1st, my friend texts me. He's like, hey, you want to do this bet with me and 10 other pastors? I'm like, what is it? He's like, 100 bucks buy-in. You have to read your Bible every day and do 100 burpees every single day. And I'm like, let's do it. I'm like, the only, you know, I, I might lose 100 bucks, but hopefully I'll get like spiritually and physically a little bit more healthy. Um, come, come to March, I actually win that bet. 
right? So I literally get 900 bucks in my wallet, and I went and bought a skateboard. So I'm 12, forgive me. Um, and at the end of the bet, I'm sitting there with money in my pocket, and I'm literally sad because I'm just like, this has been the best thing in the world for me. So what did I do? I texted more friends and started another bet. That's what I did. <laughs> you think I'm joking. I'm not. I'm literally just continuing this thing. I'm like, whatever it takes. But there was, there was a time. There's a couple weeks span in there. There's no bet going on, right? There's no, like, group text happening. Can I tell you something? I woke up craving this. Now, I wish I could tell you it didn't happen because I did a silly bet. But I'm a human being, and I respond to competition, and I'm... But what it did in me is it actually created an appetite that my soul was craving. So even after I didn't need to do it anymore, I couldn't live without it. And I encourage you guys, again, so whatever it's going to help you, you know, even if it's silly, even if it's trivial, even if it's fleshly, if it's going to get this to become bread for you, do it. So one other thing that I do and not that you have to do this, is every morning I have a rule with myself is I don't look at a single app on my phone. I don't open my email. I don't read the news. I don't go on Instagram until I looked at the Bible app and it has a verse of the day. And I take that verse and I, like, I make a little graphic with it. I save it to my phone. No one ever sees it. I take my shower and I just think and pray that verse over and over again. I meditate on that single verse. Um, and that's not my Bible study. I still do my Lectio Divina journal. I still study scripture. But for me, it's just like, it doesn't create any more time for me, right? It doesn't, I'm like, I don't have time to read the Bible. I'm like, I have time. And I just take a verse and I meditate on it. And that's how I start my day. And it's been this really, and I, I'm not perfect at it. I'm not as, you know, religious about it as the other thing. But it's just an easy way for that to become a rhythm in my life. So that's just first practical thing. Second thing. Grow in your understanding of the Bible. If you're like, I just don't get the Bible, then do something about it. Go on YouTube and start watching the Bible Project videos. They have an amazing podcast if you really want to nerd out. That's like an hour-long conversation between two professors. There's amazing churches out there that teach the Bible. Read some, I'll recommend some amazing books that have changed my life. Don't let the Bible maintain at the same level your entire life. Dig into it. It is so rich and life-giving. And the third thing is, how will you go in the practice of the Bible? This may be the most important thing. Listen, Jesus never taught to give information. Every single time Jesus taught, it was with the expectation of transformation. Do something. Go and do what I just said. And, and I, I just feel that the church, including myself, we've gotten away from that. We hope you leave with your notes Leave with a plan. Leave with an intentionality behind your life that this week, I'm going to live this out. And maybe for you, like, I'm going to read my Bible more this week. That's not the goal. The Bible is not for you to read your Bible more. The goal is for you to live the Bible more. So as you read it, I hope you do. It's wonderful and beautiful and life-changing. Do something. Let it lead you to love. Let it lead you to love God and people in a more extravagant and beautiful way than you ever have before. Sound good? Cool, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your scriptures. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us through the scriptures. And thank you that all of your scriptures 
point to Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would read scripture in that way. Lord, we would read it, if we would understand that you are the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You're the, the same way you're the fulfillment of our life and our heart. Lord, I pray that this would become a community that is rooted and built upon the scriptures. Lord, that this would not be a place where people's opinions and objectives and worldviews reign, but Lord, where your scriptures and your word reigns. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen.